0: and he and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Thank to God.
1: Thank you, Gracie. <clears throat> well, um, as we think about that passage, I would like to begin by uh, saying something that might be a little controversial. Um, I, I brought this up to my wife the other day in the kitchen, and we got into a, a little bit of a conflict over it. So I, I realize this is a this is a pretty charged statement that I'm about to make. But hey, I've got the microphone, so I can I can kind of say whatever I want, can't I? <laughs> um, I think Easter candy really needs to step its game up. I think it's not great, and it needs some work. And here's what I mean. When you think about Cadbury eggs, you know, the ones with, like, the yellow mucus in the middle? Um, you're like, yeah, that's a great treat, but it's revolting to think about. Uh, you think about the, the, the marshmallow Peeps, which <laughs> someone put up here uh, in the, in the uh, pulpit, um, with the candy coating on the outside that crunches when you bite into it. Not great. Um, my least favorite, the worst Easter candy is the big chocolate bunny, you know, the, like the giant one that comes in like a package the size of a cereal box. It's it's huge. You see it in the grocery stores. I remember when I was younger, coming downstairs on Easter morning, my, my parents had sent out the Easter basket with the fake grass and the plastic eggs with Crummy jelly beans in it and uh, next to it was like the, the cereal box size with the giant Easter bunny and um, you're thrilled as a kid. you're just like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna be eating chocolate for weeks. I'm gonna be living off of chocolate And then you open up the package and you bite into its ear and you realize it's hollow in the middle and it just crumbles in your it's like ashes it just crumbles in your hand you're like this is just... Chocolate-covered disappointment is what, is what this was. And um, I bring that up because uh, what we're doing right now, Easter morning, is we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he actually physically, bodily rose from the dead. And I'm sure there are some of us here in this room that think, that feels a little make-believe-y to me. That sounds a little, um, I don't know, made up. This is, is this too kind of fairy tale ish It's kind of irrational. You know, really, when you think about it, Easter, the point of Easter is more about the, the, the imagery of it, the symbolism of it, that, that spring comes after winter, that things are blooming, that there's, that there's hope, that good things come out of bad things. Uh, but here's what I want you to realize, that this day, it, it, like that chocolate bunny, if there's nothing really at the center of it, if there's nothing really at the center of what we're doing right now, then what we're doing right now is kind of crazy. In fact, what we're doing right now is completely pointless. We've, we've gotten dressed up. We've ironed our shirts. We've destroyed some gardens. We've um, eaten bad Easter egg, you know, Easter candy. But we're, we're coming together to celebrate something that's just not true. And you might think, okay, Matt, okay, that's a bit dramatic. We're, it's still nice to get dressed up and to be with friends and family and, and um, think about hope. Those are still meaningful things. But I want you to know that that's not how the Bible thinks about this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then Christians should be pitied among all people. Meaning if you're somebody who claims to follow Jesus and Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, your own book looks at you and says, your life is not noble for following Jesus. People should feel sorry for you because your life is a waste. Your faith is in vain. And if there is no resurrection, then Ricky Gervais was right when he said at the 2020 Golden Globes, we're all going to die soon and there's no sequel. But if the resurrection did happen, then that changes everything. Your faith is not in vain. And what we are doing is incredibly important because the, the, uh, history has been radically altered. But here's the thing how do you know, though? How do you know it's true and it's not just this wish, wishful thinking on behalf of religious people? This irrational leap in the dark of, oh, are we going to believe this crazy religious claim? Because Christians are banking, we're putting all of our eggs, all of our Easter eggs in this basket that this is true. But how can you know? That's why I think this passage that Gracie read for us is so incredibly helpful, because John 20 shows us that Easter offers you something not just for your mind, but also something for your heart. That the resurrection offers you something for your mind and also for your heart. And those are the two big ideas that I want to look at with you briefly for our time this morning. What does Easter, what does the resurrection offer your mind, and what does it offer your heart? First, here's what it offers your mind. Because I'm guessing, uh, if you're out there and you're feeling skeptical towards all this stuff, you might be thinking, "Okay, I, I can get behind the teaching of Jesus. I like forgiving. I, got, I like forgiveness. I like turning the other cheek, caring for the poor. Great. What I can't really get down with are the like oh, all the weird, like supernatural stuff, all of the like miraculous healings and rising from the dead kind of stuff. Like that's just kind of like." weird to me. This is, this is, this is, people believed that stuff back then because it was a pre-scientific world. They believed in angels and demons, and they believed stuff back then that we now know there are more naturalistic explanations for. Here's what I want to show you from this passage. Everyone in this passage is being as rational as you or I would be. Let me show you. Look at, uh, first, look at Mary. Jesus had been crucified just a few days before, and she shows up at the tomb that Sunday morning, that Easter morning, not because she's expecting a resurrection, she shows up to grieve and to mourn over Jesus with her friends. And, and so look, look what happens. In verse 1, when she shows up and she sees that the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty, she doesn't say, hallelujah, he is risen. She thinks somebody stole his body. That's the most rational explanation. And so, look what happens in verse two. She runs to get Peter and John, who are Jesus' best friends, and look at what she says in verse two. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. She's not expecting a resurrection, and when she sees an empty tomb, she doesn't conclude that there's a resurrection. Then, look at, uh, look at Peter and, and John. When they hear this news, they run to the tomb and they start investigating. In verse 6, it says that Peter saw the cloths and the face cloth folded. Now, this is fascinating, but the word saw there is um, not the normal Greek word that we would use to translate the word see. Uh, That is the normal word, the Greek word blepo, which is a hilarious word, blepo. But that's the word that's used in verse 1. That's the word that's used in verse 5. But the word in verse 6... When, when, when they see, when they saw the empty tomb, it's the word theoreo, which is where we get the word theorize from. It means to analyze. It means to observe intently with, with, the, with the hopes of trying to explain something. And so here are Peter and John, and they go into like CSI mode. They go law and order SVU mode, and they're looking at all the clues. They're, they're analyzing all the evidence. They're trying to do the math, and maybe they're thinking something like this. Maybe they're thinking, okay, if somebody stole his body, why would they unwrap it first and leave the linen cloths behind? That doesn't make any sense because the cloths are what kept the body preserved and not... Stinky. So, that why, why would they go to the trouble of unwrapping it? And why would they fold it? You know, when, when criminals are, are in the middle of a job, they're in a rush. They're not tidying up after themselves and folding laundry, you know, when they're done. This is, this is, this is some, something else that's going on here. And so they're doing the math, and the light bulb goes off. And look at what it says in verse 8 it says that John saw and believed. He looks at the evidence and he comes to the most rational conclusion. This has to mean that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's no other way to explain this. Now, you hear that and you think, well, okay, well, that's great for them. They had the benefit of being at the empty tomb. I can't be there, so you're just asking me to believe these crazy things. But here's the thing. The resurrection offers something for your mind. Uh, The resurrection's, you know, the Bible's asking you to look at the evidence as well and come to the most rational conclusion. Let me give you two things to consider briefly as we think about what evidence we have available for you and for me from this passage. Here's the first piece of evidence I want you to think about. Consider the fact that the first key witness was Mary Magdalene. Why does that matter? Here's why that matters. Um, in, In the second century, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus, I got this from Tim Keller, by the way. I don't read second century Greek philosophers. But, but he points out, which I'm very thankful for, there was a, there was a philosopher named Celsus who, who was not a Christian and wrote an intellectual attack against Christianity, trying to persuade people you shouldn't believe this. This is stupid. And one of his main arguments for why you should not believe in Christianity was the fact that Mary was the first witness. And here's what he wrote about it. And by the way, this is a trigger warning on the front end, because you're not going to like it. But here's what Celsus says in the second century. Quote, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? I told you. <laughs> I told you, you wouldn't like it. He goes on elsewhere. In that, you, can, you can Google this. You can read this whole thing if you want. He goes in, elsewhere in that same attack against Christianity. He says, quote, Christianity is for hysterical women, children, and idiots. Now, obviously, we find that language offensive because it is. I mean, he would be canceled if he tried to say that today, but um, it's offensive. But what I want you to see is that in this particular cultural moment, this is how women were regarded totally disregarded, totally not taken seriously. They had such low status in the eyes of rational men that their testimony was not even admissible in a a law of court, court of law, or a law of court, however you want to spin it. Um, But here's the point. If you're the early church and you are living in this cultural moment and you're just making up stories, inventing crazy things that people were raised from the dead to get people to believe it, why would you include that detail? It's a total liability. It hurts your cause. The only plausible reason for why Mary was the first witness to the resurrection was because Mary was the first witness to the resurrection, and they wrote it down. That John's not writing fiction, he's writing historical narrative. Now, here's the, here's the second thing. Here's the second thing I want you to think about. Uh, consider the fact that the tomb is empty. You know, Jesus doesn't show up at all in this uh, passage. He's not even in this story. It's just an empty tomb. And here's why that's important. Because in a couple of weeks after this story, the disciples are going to stand up in front of crowds of people and they're going to proclaim, Jesus is risen, believe in the risen Jesus. And do you realize if the tomb had a corpse in it, do you realize how easy it would have been to argue against them publicly to somebody to say, um, hey, okay, I hear your claims, that, the, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. If you'll just walk with me a couple of blocks, I want to show you something. Body in the grave, good try. No one does that, though. There's no uh, religious authority that, that does that. There's no Roman authority that does that. There's no skeptic that, that... Nobody disputes the fact that the tomb is empty. Everybody just assumes it's a given. Now you think, okay, well, what happened to his body then? What happened to, the, what happened to his corpse and you think, well, okay, well, that's obvious. The disciples stole it. They took it, hid it, and then went around telling everybody to believe in the risen Jesus so they could kind of get their movement off the ground. That would make sense unless you knew that every single one of the disciples were tortured and murdered because of their faith in the resurrection, every single one of them. It's one thing to believe something that, you're delu- that isn't true, that you're deluded into believing it. But to believe something that you know is a lie, that you know is a hoax, somebody eventually ha- would have cracked. Somebody would have broken, don't you think? In, in fact, um, you-, you might be familiar with the name Charles Coulson. He was one of the men indicted in the Watergate scandal of uh, 1972. And here's what he wrote. I, th- I thought this was pretty fascinating. He once said this, I know the resurrection is a fact And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus rise from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Or here's how uh, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it to make it a little bit more uh, simple. He said, quote, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut now, uh, there's more that we could say, but, you, you, you know, for the, for the sake of time, you, you get the point, that, that the resurrection is not just religious fairy tale mumbo-jumbo. There's actual, you can have rational confidence. If you look at the evidence, if you look at the claims, if you look at how do you explain what in the world even happened back then, the resurrection offers you something for your mind. But here's the thing, because you and I need more. Because you might hear that and you might think, okay, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that before. But still, why does this matter? Who cares? Okay. I mean, you can't prove it, can't disprove it. So, the resurrection offers you something for your heart as well. And that's the last thing I want to show you as, as, we, as we look at this last thing. Uh, when you read the story, didn't you notice it, it just kind of feels so anticlimactic, like, like, look at what happens to John and Peter after they just believe that someone has been raised from the dead, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Like, that's it? Just, oh, Jesus has been raised. Let's go home. Let's go home. It feels so, it just feels so ordinary. Well, You know what happens? We know what happens. They go home, and they tell their family what happened, and then they tell their friends what happened. And like I said, a couple weeks later, they stand up and they start to preach about what happened. And people start to believe and start to come around to this idea of maybe, whoa, maybe this actually did happen. And then there's a group of people, they start to gather together to worship this risen Jesus. And when they gather together, they start to bring together races of people that never got along out there in the world. That now they're coming together and are forming a family and a friendship. Uh, this group of people started to treat women with with honor and dignity in ways that the rest of the culture thought was just crazy. They started to care for the poor in such radical ways that the the Roman emperor himself noticed and paid attention. They started to take in infants when they were thrown out into the streets as as trash. The church would, would bring those children in and raise them. They provided hospitality for travelers when people were traveling. They didn't have hotels. They didn't have uh, Airbnb back then. And so the churches were the places where travelers would go to receive hospitality. When pandemics and plagues would hit cities... And everybody in those cities ran for the hills. It was the, it was the church that would stick around behind and risk their lives and die for the sake of caring for the medical needs of their friends and their neighbors in those particular cities. Uh, th- they started hospitals. They started public schools. They created amazing art. They created amazing music. Centuries later, they helped develop and advance the, the realm of science this is, the, this is the group that was behind the abolitionist movement in the late 18th century. They fueled the German resistance against the Nazi regime of the 20th century. They birthed the civil rights movement right here in our own country. How do you explain this shockwave, this, this movement that got started, this movement of grace and of love and of service? It wasn't because of Jesus' teaching. It was because of an event. It was because the event of the resurrection. If you think about the impact, the difference in impact between teaching and an event. If someone teaches you, you should recycle. You should cut back on your carbs. You should say please and thank you. If you follow and obey that teaching, that will impact your life. It would be great. It'll be way different than the impact of an event like looking at a positive pregnancy test or hearing the doctor say to you, uh, the cancer is gone or seeing uh, your fiance say to you and hear them say to you at the altar, I do. Every other religion is primarily teaching with some events sprinkled in. And whether or not the events are true, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because what's ultimately important are, is the teaching. It's the ethics. It's the, it's the spiritual duties. Every other religion is basically a system of here's what you must do for God. Christianity is the exact opposite. It's primarily an event with some sprinkling teaching in. Or some (laughs) some teaching sprinkled in. And if the event didn't happen, then the Bible itself says, who cares about the teaching? Throw it out. It's totally inconsequential. But if the event happened, that means that Christianity is fundamentally not a system of stuff that you must do for God, but it is a declaration of what God has done for you. It is primarily and fundamentally a declaration of grace that God himself has stepped into our world and onto a cross and into a tomb and then three days later walked out alive. That is the story. That is the reality that sunk into the disciples' hearts and the world hasn't been the same since. That same reality can happen to you and the same reality can happen to you to me. When you look at the resurrection, when you look at the empty tomb and you begin to say, okay, he walked out of that grave for me, that tells you that your love to a degree that you didn't even imagine was possible. That tells you that death does not get the final say anymore. That tells you that there is life to be found, but it is not found through accumulating of stuff, but it is found on the other side of sacrificing everything. Everything. When the resurrection gets into your heart and when it gets into your mind, it it changes everything. You can't go back to business as usual anymore. Final thought, and then I'm done. Final image. Uh, You might be familiar that um, during the Bosnian War, which took place between 1992 and 1996, uh, the city of Sarajevo was besieged. It was horrible. 14,000 people were killed. There were bombs and machine guns and fires, I would imagine similar to the horrific images that you see coming out of Ukraine. And um, people, civilians, were scared for their lives. They were constantly scared of uh, shellings or snipers. They were constantly, food and resources and food and water were scarce. So one day, there's 22 people lined up at one of the only cities working bakeries. Uh, People lined up for bread to feed their family, and a shell goes off, bomb goes off, uh, and all 22 people instantly lost their lives. The next day, uh, March 28th, 1992, a man named Vidron Smolovich, who was one of the cello players in the Sarajevo Opera decided that he was going to do something. He dresses up in his formal black tux. He gets his cello, and he goes out into the middle of the town square, sits down on a fire-scorched chair in the middle of a bomb crater, and starts playing. He plays Al Adagio in G minor. Uh, He was so grieved by the carnage and the destruction around him that he decided to revolt against the ugliness of it all with the only weapon that he had available, which was his cello, which was with, with beauty, that he decides, I'm going to push back the carnage and the ugliness of this moment with beauty, and for 22 days, one day for each of the lives of the victims, he goes out into graveyards, he goes into funerals, he goes into the open square to play. You can look up image of this, images of this online, it's, it's amazing. Here's this man in this, you know, with tails, formal black tux, in the middle of rubble, in the middle of a city that's just obliterated in destruction, and there he is. And, and even though he was out in the open, even though any sniper could have taken him out if, if they wanted to, he was never shot totally vulnerable, never attacked, just this one bright spot of beauty and of goodness in the middle of absolute destruction. I love that image because it shows us an image of what the resurrection is, that here is Jesus stepping into our world of carnage and of death and of disease and shame and loneliness and destruction, and he shows up with his resurrection life bursting through. It's like a shaft of light just breaking through the darkness. But I also love that image because it doesn't just show you what the resurrection is, it also shows you what the resurrection produces. That when that reality gets into your mind and it sinks into your heart That's what it produces in you. You get sent out into the places of carnage, in the places of pain, in the places of destruction to meet what is broken about the world with the beauty and with the goodness and with the love and the kindness that is available to us in the gospel. We show up into the places of darkness in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our own lives, facing and revolting against the ugliness with the beauty of grace. Grace and with the beauty of King Jesus. He is alive. That means that your faith and your labor is not in vain. This is not just a sugary shell with nothing in the middle of it. This is the hope of the world. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you saw fit to step into a world that can't fix itself. As hard as we try, it feels like we just keep making it worse. And Father, so you have come to rescue us from ourselves and you have inserted yourself into a world that is so painful, so sad, so destructive to show up not with tanks, not with machine guns, but with sacrificial love. I pray that that grace, that life, that power would be would capture our imaginations, would convince our minds, would compel our lives to be lives of grace wherever you put us. We want our world to be different. We want Midtown to be different. We want the beauty and the goodness of the resurrection to take over the very world. Help us, convince us, compel us, we pray. We pray all this in Jesus' name.